0: Hello, and welcome to Spectology, the Science Fiction Book Club podcast. I'm your host, Adrian. And I'm Matt. This month on Spectology, we've been reading 10 Billion Days and 100 Billion Nights by Ryu Mitsuse. This is our post-read of the book, where we will be talking in-depth, with spoilers, uh, about the themes of the book, about the actual story of it, sort of like, you know, the whole deal. We're really getting deep into the book itself. Uh, If you've never read the book before, you might want to listen to our pre-read episode from a few weeks ago. Um, And you can also listen to other episodes where we talk about other books. So each month, you know, we pick a book, we talk about it, we read it. Etc., maybe not exactly in that order. We usually read it, then we talk about it, but you know, (laughs) never stopped this before. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So, anyway, like I said, we're talking about 10 billion days and 100 billion nights, the Japanese science fiction classic by Ryu Mitsuse. Uh, Again, as a disclaimer, like I did in the other episode. I don't speak Japanese at all, so I'll be just using very Americanized versions of the words because I have no idea how it's actually pronounced, so I don't even want to attempt it. Uh, Matt speaks Japanese a little I, bit. I so. would say I
1: speak bad Japanese, so I know perhaps just enough to get into trouble. Um, <laughs> but I'll, I'll do my best and, you know, you should uh, please, uh, you know, if if you feel so inclined, do tell me that what I've gotten wrong.
0: Mm hmm. You know, always that's a sort of like always disclaimer for us. And, um, yeah, I think content wise the book, you know, we might, there's like a lot of like sort of destruction and violence and that kind of stuff, but
1: nothing, nothing too far out of your usual science fiction violence. So I would say, as as I said in the, in the pre-read, oh, right. I think that there are a lot of religious things that may be very difficult for some people who are sincerely religious. Yes. Uh, and that applies to people of a variety of religions yeah definitely and we'll (laughs) be talking a lot about the
0: religious aspect of this book too so we'll we'll you know uh apologies in advance (laughs) for that (laughs) um cool so with that i think it's always fun matt to kind of you know you recommended this book
1: i'm pretty sure you liked it.
0: did you reread it fully actually for this
1: no i didn't read the whole thing again i read uh, big chunks of it um, mm-hmm. I I t- basically just skimmed a lot you know because right, right. I some parts I remembered very well and some parts I remembered less well right and then some key things like the last chapter you know obviously I read the, all of that and and uh, stuff like that cool yeah and this is my first time
0: reading it so um I read most of it um, over the past couple of weeks. I did actually just finish it today, but only the last like 30 pages or something like that did I still have left to go. Um, so it's both been like a longer process and it is still like fresh with me. Um, another thing I chose to do because I know that Matt has read the book before and um, has also read a lot of like kind of criticism and review around the book. Uh, I purposefully didn't really read any of that. I skimmed a little bit of stuff, but I thought it would be kind of fun to come at it as like me being very like new and fr- in some ways ignorant like just have it just having the book as reference while Matt has you know a lot more both like cultural background because he's done like Asian studies in a way that I haven't as well as like background for this book in particular so that 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 will be our you know um method <laughs> for this post read I guess <laughs> um you know the discourse the like you know design discourse of the post read um is me as the ignoramus uh <laughs> anyway anyway um yeah so so you you well right um you liked the book though right this is sort of like did we
1: like it section yeah i recommended it because i really like it Mm -hmm. i like it a lot um did you like the book
0: i really liked the first like 60 percent of it Mm -hmm. um the first Like section of more like historical fiction chapters, which which make up like in my Kindle, like actually like exactly 60 percent, I found really great and fascinating. The second half of the novel where it turns into more of the like far future kind of like galaxy spanning thing was more difficult for me. I think I understand less of the themes that he was going for. And I want to talk about that stuff a little bit more. It's also more fresh in my mind. That might be part of it. But it definitely, I, I hit a lull in reading. This is oftentimes how I figure out what I liked and didn't, which is like, after that 60% point, I hit this lull where it became a little bit harder for me to read. Um, and it wasn't that like, I think actually some of it was that the style changed a little bit. It became a lot less concrete of a novel at that point. Um, and also, yeah, it was maybe a little bit more inscrutable, uh, to me as well. So I'm looking forward to talking about that. So I can't give a full throated recommendation of it. I mean, well, I can't in the sense of like, if you like big ideas, science fiction, read it. It's cool. It's really interesting. It's fun. It's like weird. It's, you know, I, I hate to use the word weird when it comes to like, Oh, a di- thing, a different culture did. Um, but it's, you know, it's very different. And we talked about this a lot in the pre-read very different from the typical Anglo American science fiction thing. And in fact, you can also see a lot of, you know, you can see its influences like the things that influenced it as well as its influence on a whole host of Japanese as well as Anglo science fiction products, movies, comics, et cetera. Yeah. Again, we talk about all of that in the pre-read. So I don't think we need to get that much into it this right. episode, but just to, you know, mention that, that there's all, there's a lot of that, you know, we, we will probably yeah. talk about some of the specifics here uh, because that, that was cool. I mean, Just as like someone who's very well, uh, like pretty well read in Anglo science fiction, as well as watch a lot of movies and watch anime, watch a lot of American and British sci fi movies and TV shows. It was really fun to, um, if nothing else, get this cultural context. It's, Mm -hmm. you know, it felt kind of like if you had been watching sitcoms through the like 90s and 2000s, but had never seen Seinfeld and then like go back and watch Seinfeld. Now it's like that where it's like, oh, this is where all of this started yeah you know, i'm really like glad that text you said text that in a lot
1: of ways i'm really glad that you said that that was I, that's really what i was hoping you know y- you'd think about it um and so that's 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 cool mm-hmm. i i definitely think about it the same way there's a um there's a postscript by uh the uh, the creator of ghost in the shell um after in the at the end of the edition that we have which i think is the only english language edition uh of the book and uh he describes um in uh, in great detail, his fandom, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and in particular, to, to to drive home the influence that Ryu Mitsusei has had on on him and his work, um, he describes an encounter. I mean, I recommend that you know if you if you get this book and read it, you should definitely also read the postscript mm-hmm. and the authors afterward, and they're really great um, and not that long. He describes, um, his you know when he was a, a teenager in the uh 70s or the late 60s i can't remember um getting a chance to interview you mean to say for this like um school paper job that he had mm-hmm. and he basically apparently like, to hear him tell it he you know he, uh, it, like, the whole point of him getting this, like, newspaper gig was to be able to, like, interview Say or something like <laughs> that. Like, maybe I'm exaggerating a little bit. But I mean, basically, I've definitely he, he was, done that
0: kind of thing before. <laughs> right.
1: He, so he, he, he sets I mean, up what this, is opportunity. this podcast in a lot
0: of ways. <laughs> yeah. I, right. Exactly. Right.
1: Um, he, he, so he sets up this opportunity to interview Say and, uh, and he describes it as getting a chance to meet his idol. Mm-hmm. And he just, like, is obsessed. And, and so, you know, that's, a that's, you know, obviously a very specific, clear example of somebody, you know, who made Ghost in the Shell is arguably, you know, one of the cornerstones of of like modern cyberpunk. Um, totally. And and the guy that made that is an obsessed fan of Ryu Mitsusei and in particular of this book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there were cool, like, you
0: know, I mean, for a book written in the late 60s, there was a lot more like cybernetics than I expected, Um, you know, and maybe a lot of that was kind of abstract and whatnot. But still, it's like that was actually something I was struck by reading. It was like, oh, this feels like a book written in the 80s and like certain aspects of that.
1: Yeah. That's one of the really cool things to think about going to other cultures is that people kind of have ideas in a different order. Yeah. Or like some things that it took a while to become popular in America like people in Japan were writing about early on. <clears throat> I think mm-hmm. ecological apocalypse is actually mm-hmm. one such thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really interesting to think about. So, one of the things that people compare this book to um, in some of the reviews that I read, in particular, I read a good review on um, uh, Two Guys in an Attic, which is a, a Japanese sci fi blog that's mm, pretty cool. cool. Um, yeah, we'll link to all the reviews we talk yeah. about too. Uh, he, uh, uh, I, b- I believe it's a man, he wrote. Um, uh, writes, um, that this book, uh, he spent a bunch of time on, um, various Japanese message boards and asking people about what they thought of the book. And apparently, you know, it gets compared to Dune a lot, um, interesting, occupying almost like a similar place in the Canon, I guess you'd say that's the sense in which he, he makes the comparison. And so, you know, it's, it's like this book that's very influential and like this huge classic, uh, of the field. Um, uh, and both of those books obviously came out around the same time too so it's kind right. of had a similar generational impact if you kind of place it within the various generations of authors and readers mm-hmm. like um, in context they're in a similar place right but but um and of course both books are have some similar themes at least some but yeah, yeah you know you, we can argue about that but yeah. the um no that was a like yeah I, I i see what you're saying kind of thing um
0: my, but the, a little bit of this is like, I don't, I actually liked this book way more than I liked Dune. I am not, yeah, a big Dune, fan has of Dune so many issues, right? Yeah, yeah, but uh, um, that's that's neither here. I want to like <laughs> right say that so I can ignore it from here on, but I like yeah. have to get that out <laughs> <And laughs> right.
1: there. We lose so, half our
0: audience, time to rebuild again.
1: Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> Sorry, keep going, Matt. But, um, but this book, you know. Ten uh, Million Days and Hundred Billion Nights is um, is so different from Dune, and it's about so many ideas that don't begin to appear. I mean, like you start to see them in J.G. Ballard's work in the '60s, and there's definitely like kind of some eco- ecological. Oh, yeah, Roger Zelazny in the '60s, too. Some Ursula K. Le Guin. And definitely stuff that you I start seeing right, in loved, the '60s and in I the love US. see I, I love pointing out Anna Kavan's Ice, which is from the '50s, mm-hmm, which features mm-hmm. like ice walls annihilating civilization Um, because it turns out in the early 50s like you know global cooling was the big had about the same salience as global warming you know in terms of like the popular imagination Mm -hmm. there was this major global cooling report in like the early 50s you know and this is there just wasn't good data they you know they didn't have good models and good data so like you know i don't well also i think the
0: like nuclear winter idea was tied up with that too there's a lot of science fiction where it's like oh nuclear war happens and then like
1: the earth cools cools immensely and like that's kind of like trope you see totally um but anyway so obviously ecological apocalypse stuff existed um in the west um but It's interesting, like, what we think of as apocalypse or post-apocalyptic literature, I think, has a lot to do with a certain attitude. Um, Well, there's
0: often this, like, self-reliance, survivalism, maybe
1: rebuilding society thing going on. There's (laughs) two attitudes, I guess. That's one of them. And there's also this sort of despair attitude that I, you know, you you see a lot in the 80s and the 70s um, in the West. Like in J.G. Ballard, for example, I mean, people are not rebuilding.
0: <laughs> right, right. Well, and that, like, there's
1: that kind of like maybe
0: slow decline thing that goes on in some of that yeah, stuff, Yeah, a sense too. of doom,
1: a sense of, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Yeah, unavoidable
0: doom. In particular of like, you know, and this is something we talked about in the pre-read of I think a lot of American like post apocalyptic literature kind of comes at it from this like individualistic, like survivalism type mm-hmm, thing. Mm-hmm. Where you know, even the doom stuff is still often has that kind of like storytelling element of it. So, you know, yeah. it's usually about like a single white dude trying to survive in some road, way, you, you know? know, yeah, exactly, exactly. I was just about yeah. to say that, um, as well as just so many others. Like, The Road is a kind of interesting, like, taking mm-hmm. all of that and like synthesizing it, text, but um. Whereas like this and a lot of the like kind of destruction anime stuff that I've seen, it feels a little bit more like, you know, oh, yeah, like this has happened in the past and it will happen in the future. And like society is like kind of comes through the apocalypse instead of ending at the apocalypse. And like society is sort of like one of the things that like helps you through an apocalypse. And, you know, that's actually maybe even an attitude that like N.K. Jemisin takes a little bit in the in the fifth season, Books where it's like there's all this like in a world where apocalypse happens very frequently there's lore about how to survive it (laughs) you Mm -hmm. know and like that that meme is a survival structure that like and this happened i mean you know it's like we talked a lot about growing up in california and alaska etc like we have all this lore about what to do in an earthquake, in right. a volcano, in right. a tsunami. You know what to do. It's, you know, right. and it's told through stories, it's told through, you know, like emergency bulletins. It's told through all these different ways and like packaged together that is society and that is lore helping you through an apocalypse instead of society like falling apart through apocalypse. Um, right. anyway, that is kind of neither here nor there, but Yeah.
1: Right. No, that's all true. I totally agree. This book, however, it has a very different um, not very different, but it has, you know, it's it's a view that in the 60s in the West, I don't recall seeing elsewhere. The closest mm-hmm. I can think of is an Anna Kavan-style view of Apocalypse. Because the way I would describe 10 Billion Days and 100 Billion Nights is it's a book that's about um, entropy. It's not even a Apocalypse per se. It, certainly mm-hmm. he uses a mm-hmm. word that gets translated as ruin a lot yep. and destruction and words like that. But he's not talking about something that's he's talking about like every different possible facet of destruction and ruin and loss yeah. and, and death. Mm-hmm. Um the word is also cheap. often an
0: equation of like, you know, like surviving in a stable state and not being able to evolve can also be equated with like that same right. kind of ruin, which is interesting. Yeah.
1: From a certain point of view, this whole book is about the nature of entropy and Our moral relationship with it. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the reasons I love this book because it takes such an expansive view of such a big problem. The amount of ambition that went into just kind of having the idea and then executing the idea for this book is boggles my mind. I mean, he's like, how about I write about not just like what it means to be alive, but what it means to be life? The condition of existence itself. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to adopt every possible major theological perspective <laughs> all at the same time. <laughs> and obviously, you know, I would not say that he succeeds, you know, completely at, at accomplishing a goal that, that huge, you know, right. but just the attempt, the, the, the amount of skill that went into the attempt and the, the level of success he does have is, is really impressive. Yeah. Um, so, oh, go ahead. Just one more thing, which is that the other thing about it is that it's also very personal. It it takes place um, simultaneously at the level of whole societies, but also at the level of individuals and individual relationships with the concept of ruin and death and loss. Yeah. Um, And that's, that's where it's similar to Anna Kavan's book, Ice, also because it's it's psychological in that sense it's like internal Mm -hmm. it's focused on kind of like what attitude should you as an individual take towards this what is your personal moral relationship to this not just like what should society do to forestall this collectively because i mean we could argue about this but i think his message at the end is like you can't (laughs) right (laughs) um but or like you never will be able to in the end i mean you may be successful in like you know there may be a thing that you as a society can do to forestall your your demise for 10 million years but mm. or for a billion years but you will die in the end you will lose everything mm-hmm. <laughs> and i just mm-hmm. like it's such an amazing powerful message but but in not just that it's it's got the personal and the collective or he's trying to at- attack it from both directions um right. which i think is really interesting yeah Yep.
0: Yeah. I actually all have some stuff to say about that kind of like personal, like the, the abstract to the concrete and the personal to the societal stuff in a little bit too. Um, yeah. One thing I did want to, you know, can you like we talked about starting with this but you know like our our honor our, our, <laughs> the reader on yeah. our notes the very first heading we have for the first section we wanted to talk about the heading is what the fuck <laughs> like what actually <laughs> happened what's the story about like what yeah, what happened what is this book you know yeah, like, exactly
1: <laughs> i think it's easy to like especially if you kind of are just like plowing ahead as you read it's easy to get to the end of the book and be like what the hell did i just
0: read <laughs> yeah 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 very good i mean i felt that way a little bit especially because i was, you know like we read on a deadline and we're recording these only a week apart so i actually didn't have a long time to read this book i'm a slower reader um and so it was very much like i got to the end and i was like okay
1: wait what <laughs> <laughs> i mean this uh, book this book is so trippy it features like jesus of nazareth fighting siddhartha like cyber jesus fighting like S- cyber, cyber magic siddhartha right in space basically using like with lasers like
0: with lasers
1: and like singularities yeah yeah with like just like infinite right. numbers of buzzwords of like science buzzwords it's There's, wild like, <laughs> negative energy coming from a sea of dirac to charge a maser that like you know has right that teleports like, them to a the target yeah, different lock, galaxy you know? like- <laughs> and the
0: whole yeah the whole and you know that was one of the things like i said earlier i kind of struggled with was the latter half of the book the latter you know third of the book exactly whatever it is two fists is a little bit like it's very ab- like it somehow gets very abstract like it's not like the visual language of the novel kind of falls away. And so it's both more abstract as well as more like science and numbers driven. It turns very much into like, you know, the characters will just be like talking about this kind of like, you know, sciencey stuff, but it's kind of like made up sciencey stuff mm-hmm. really quickly and having these really quick, intense conversations about it. Um, which was weird because there's very little drama in that it's like the climax of the novel, but there's also very little drama in being told like, Oh, well I just like jiggity jig the doobly doo And like, now we have a Dirac like <laughs> condensator and it's like, what, what is any <laughs> Like, there's no foreshadowing to this whatsoever.
1: <laughs> yeah. So if we could say, let, let, let's take a step back and just talk about like what literally happens, happens in this book. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so the first, the first, do you want to do you want to go through stuff and or we'll just jump back and forth? Yeah,
0: or I think it's worth kind of. It is, I think, worth splitting the novel into the two halves because the first, you know, like I said the first like three fifths are a little bit more clear and concrete. I mean, it's this kind of like historical science fiction type thing in a lot of ways where you, you know, have these four different chapters, maybe three. One is man, but even those are so fucking
1: weird. Yeah. So I actually don't think of it the way that you think of it in terms of, I mean, I I get what you're saying, like how there's like a historical part and a future part kind of, that's definitely true. But the way that I thought about it when I read it was, was a little different. I think of it as like an onion, like the book, or it's like, yeah, like it's like a series of layers
0: before uh, I want to hear this. The one thing is, I think in the first part, especially the book reminded me a lot of Gnomon, um, And the way that it was sort of these like different layered stories that had like similar themes will bubble to the surface in like these different stories. And it kind of feels like, oh, there's, you know, these stories, but there's some like underlying reality to them. So, you know, I think in terms of like you're saying the layers of the onion, I actually one of the things that I kept coming back to in that first part was Gnomon and kind of the feeling I got reading the mm-hmm. kind of first, mm-hmm. like, cause I think with Gnomon, it was also a similar chunk and maybe that's why it's like the first, like 60% of the novel is like the first story in each in each of these like Mm -hmm. stories and you get that here too. And so I almost, I think prime myself a little bit to be like, Oh, then we'll get like furthering, continuing smaller stories. Like, no, then they all get together and they're in the fucking like apocalyptic, like future where galaxies Uh are colliding. And it's like, Whoa, that went, that went crazy fast. (laughs) Yeah.
1: I actually realized only today uh, I should have realized earlier that there's a lot of similarities between this book and Noman. Mm-hmm. Um Nomon, of course, postdates it by many decades. So right. I wonder. I mean, we could ask Harkaway at some yeah. point if we if we can. Like, you know, if he ever heard of this book, he may not have. I mean, there's plenty of other books that have a sort of similar structure. But, oh, totally, totally. But it's just interesting to compare the two. Um, right, and, and I, think I think
0: because about- I'd read that when I was primed in a certain way, reading this right. one even like unconsciously.
1: Yeah. And, and, you know, of course, a book like Cloud Atlas is another take on the sort of ensemble structure, yep. ensemble cast structure. Yep. It goes a very different place with it. But there's many other books that that do similar things. But anyway, so the way that I think about the structure of this is it's an onion, but it's like, you know, in, a, in an ontological and a metaphysical sense, it's an onion, not in like a um, we're getting closer and closer to the truth. It's not that we're getting closer and closer to the truth. It's that the truth itself is layered mm-hmm. I think the way the book describes reality um it's sort of like um a series it's either a ser. it's like a some kind of infinite series or you know in that um you have a life and then beyond the outer limits of the most far po- the furthest possible extent of your life you know there is a wall but beyond that there is another life mm-hmm and that's true both in, in terms of time and in terms of space. It's true in terms of size, in terms of bigness, and in terms of smallness. You know, there's hints at various points that, like, you know, the the action that we see depicted, you know, at first it has a certain scale. And then that scale, you know, we, we go, we get larger than the furthest upper limit of that scale, and we have a new scale. Or mm-hmm. we get smaller, for smaller than the, the smallest limit of a scale, and we have a new scale. And there's this jumping from kind of dimension to dimension in that way. And I think finally, when you get to the very end of the book, there's an explicit discussion of this jumping from dimension to dimension that happens between Ashra and, um, I guess, the Kakravarti Rajan. Uh, and you know, they they don't discuss it directly, but the the final sort of piece of the book is this, like, dream sequence that the Kakravarti Rajan, like, gives to Asherah. Mm-hmm. And it's a sequence that basically hints that the entire extent of everything that we've discussed in this entire book, which itself has just been, like, going from one dimension to another dimension, bigger and bigger and bigger, is itself just, like, tiny, insignificant molecules in a larger dimension, Mm -hmm. um and so a lot in a lot of ways the book reminded me of uh oh i forget what it's called it's that amazing video where you like it goes from the smallest powers of 10 powers of 10 yeah it reminded me of powers of 10 a lot um this book like i think has a a a view of ontology that that like that like that is that, that the nature of the universe is that like you can keep going further smaller and you can keep expanding more on the larger end to infinity in both directions i think that's the Mm -hmm. view of ontology Mm -hmm. this book has and the view of metaphysics that it has is that um you know is that like all of this stuff is equally real none of it is more or less real than anything else um that's kind of what the to me what the title sort of hints at it's like So we have gotten really, really abstract here. Um, (laughs) Sorry. And
0: I kind of, no, no, it's good. I just want to like anchor it a little bit in, in like, you know, to, to begin with like what happens in the story? Like what is the text (laughs) of the book before we get into the metaphysics of it? Because I just feel like it's hard for me to talk about that stuff without having more of the concrete anchor first. Uh, Mm -hmm. And so I feel like I'm not going to be able to, like, really hold up my end of this
1: conversation until we do that. All right. All right. So the very beginning of the book is a description of, like, the origin of life on Earth.
0: Yes. The origin.
1: It's the origin of, like... Uh, of the biosphere and then of life
0: right well in one particular like kind of like mythology of it where like everything Mm -hmm. is leading to this point that like life begins as opposed to like oh all these things are always happening but you know Mm -hmm. i it, it is very much this like kind of like story of like the big bang and then the stars form and then the planets form and then the planet is hot and then, you know, like geological processes start happening and then like, you know, chemical processes start happening. And then some of those chemical processes have like elements of like life to them. And then biological processes start happening. And it's kind of like, you know, where you're narrowing down from this kind of like largest, like cosmological, like physics into the like most concrete kind of like bio life sciences. Um, I do think it's worth pointing out that there is like a certain like the narrative of that story is one that like is very much a narrative. Like this is a story that we've heard a lot where like, Oh, this happened, like physics happened. And then, you know geology began or like astrophysics happened and then planetary physics happened. We're like the truth is actually like physics happened and are still happening. Like, you know, there's not actually a like point there's not like in the real, like the real universe does not like aim towards this like life happening thing. That is like a myth that we tell. We do the same thing when we talk about, um, like humanity for me, you know, we'll, we'll often like continue this myth and be like, and then like more and more complex organisms like evolved and like, okay, well that's on the one hand true, but that's also not to say that the like less complex organisms aren't still here and also still themselves evolving. Like we're not the point
1: to anything.
0: Um, yeah. I totally agree It's a I, like I think story
1: in a cool way. Yeah. I think this book definitely doesn't completely avoid a like fundamentally anthropocentric view of no well i think it
0: it, le- it leans into it
1: too i mean that's kind of what the story yeah. part of well, why i
0: point this out is like yeah yeah it's kind it's of what the story is about when you talk yeah. about like there's always bigger or smaller kind of like directions to go i mean i think that this is kind of part of that like yeah. this story is the story of like life and humanity and then at the very end it's like oh but you know the tide still comes and goes even like whether or not
1: humanity is there. Right. Like that's, that's what I was about to say is I think it's like on the one hand, the book is like fundamentally sort of life centric in a certain way. And by life, it means something particular that has to do with humans. But on the other hand, the book kind of wants to be bigger than that and wants to acknowledge the limits of that kind of view. It doesn't yes. always succeed, but like I, it right. wants to.
0: Well, no, I think by you have to tell that human centric story that we've all heard. You have to tell
1: that myth before you can yeah.
0: describe it as a myth.
1: Yeah. Even in the very beginning of the book, there's a, a lot of imagery with the ocean mm-hmm. coming in and receding. And that's a, 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 an image that is repeated throughout and at the very end mm-hmm. um, to give a sense of time passing over incredibly long scales. Right, yeah, the sense of like the ocean
0: there is somewhat metaphorical for like just processes happening in the universe. Yeah, yeah, which I liked a lot. I really like that imagery. If you know, there's I, also like, a really beautiful. Carl image Sagan from... would call it like the cosmic ocean. You know? Oh yeah,
1: totally. I, I there's a really that. beautiful section in the beginning when it's describing the formation of the ocean and the planet cooling. There's a line. It goes, the clouds form. Right. And then there's a line that says it would be tens of millions of years more until that rain began to reach the surface. Yeah. Which I yep. just th- I thought that was so beautiful. I I think the prose, you know, for all that it's in translation, it's pretty good. Like, it's oh, it's, it's, it's sort of uneven, translation. But like some of the some of the lines really stick with you. It's it's actually very beautiful. I agree. Um, so that happens. And, uh, life begins and then pretty early on, I I don't know if I remember exactly what happens in what order, but early on we have a sense of there's a particular individual creature that is like in the ocean.
0: Right. Yeah. That's the next chapter where it's like all of a sudden it tells the story of this creature in
1: the ocean and we don't know what this creature is or what its name is or how long a period this chapter takes place over. And we also don't know like what it looks like exactly. But it's right. probably not human, probably. and it, it lives in the ocean. For example, right. Um, and but it also kind of comes out on land sometimes, or at least yeah.
0: knows land is there. Um, and you get the sense at this point that it's like, oh, this is like you know one of the first fish to walk on land or something along those right. lines. Which, of course, is the book tricking you
1: <laughs> at that point. Right. You won't learn until later. Right. Yeah. It's it's sort of. Um, the, the nature and purpose of this creature is mysterious thr- throughout, but we are given a lot of descriptions of it interacting with this environment, mm. um, interacting with other sea creatures, going up on land to, like, look around at this, like, beautiful, empty earth. Um, mm. And uh, it kind of goes in and out of, like, hibernation. And, like, yeah, you get the sense that eons pass and evolution takes its course and, like, the right. planet changes and more things And develop. over time,
0: well, also, like, over time, like, the fish start dying out and, like, everything, like it's kind of final swim. There's
1: like nothing else there. Like it's alone. <laughs> yeah. And you don't know if this is like supposed to be su- saying that the whole planet is like that, or if it's just like this particular just area. area.
0: Right. Right. Cause it's yeah. written from the, like this kind of animalistic, like almost like, you know, obviously it's written on the page in words, but the like thing it's talking about is kind of like this pre verbal animalistic, intelligence mm-hmm. consciousness and it has like that sense of it so you don't get necessarily the kind of like concrete like X and Y is happening from this chapter you have to kind of like mm-hmm. sense around the edges of it
1: yeah and then you know it cuts from that creature to mm-hmm. uh, well that
0: creature w- goes to hibernate and you realize it's hibernating in some sort of like technological construct Ah, yes 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 and then it cuts and you're like wait what oh okay <laughs> right
1: <laughs> it's the first First, very explicit sort of like high tech thing that we see. Yep. And it's like, okay, this must have come from another planet or something
0: or something. I mean, we also, again, we don't don't know know.
1: where in time it is. Like we get the
0: sense that this is happening like early in the lifespan of the planet. But we learn later that it's actually happening
1: late in the lifespan of the planet. Mm. Well, actually, that's an interesting question, because I think it could be either or both. (laughs) <laughs> interesting okay yeah, well we'll anyway. talk about that when
0: we get to the like seconds at Harta chapter <laughs> yeah um so yeah then we go to plato
1: <laughs> then we cut to plato cut to plato uh uh-huh. <laughs> famous philosopher yeah. um if you plato didn't...
0: who becomes not plato over the course of the like yeah. this book has a very interesting relationship with character This is something, this is a thing, like, I wanted to talk about, and I think this is maybe an interesting place to start talking about it, where, like, Plato, over this chapter, like, he travels, he's wanting to learn about Atlantis, he, like, meets some people who know about Atlantis, they have some, like, technology that's way further advanced than, like, most ancient Greek technology, Uh, he gets kind of, like, wrapped up in this thing, and then something happens. It's it's unclear throughout the whole novel to me, at least like exactly what happens where he begins receiving the memories of like a man who was essentially like the, like a Lord in Atlantis who went against the will of the like Greek gods who had created Atlantis. The Greek gods who created Atlantis turn out to be some sort of like aliens who are trying to like develop earth as a planet for some purpose. Um, a great disaster befalls Atlantis, blah, blah, blah. And after that Plato, the character in this part of the section kind of also becomes this Orion. A is the name of the character. Who's like memories and life. He sort of follows. And then he kind of becomes him. And, and later in the book, he's only ever referred to as Orion. A. And this is the sense of like, like, Character is kind of fluid, like identity is kind of fluid in this novel in a way, Yomer. Right. I've never really seen before where it's like one character can just kind of turn into another one, yeah. You know, what does I that mean?
1: mean? We, <laughs> and we see that with other characters as well, to different in different ways, yes, um, very much. Other characters who are featured in this book, in addition to Plato, uh, Jesus of Nazareth, yeah, um, Siddhartha. Um, Judas and Pontius Pilate <laughs> yeah yeah uh, Asura uh, Asura who is uh, uh, Asura is a very complicated figure so I think deserves right, her, her, own, her own section we'll talk a little more about that she comes yeah. from the mythology of the Indian subcontinent put it that way
0: right but she's also like a single personification of like a lot of different creatures and gods, as opposed to, like, there's no one god in Hinduism that is Asura. That's rather, like, a type of deity, not, like, an individual Yeah, there deity. are
1: individuals who have that name, though. And so it's very ambiguous right? right. what this character is taken from, specifically. Right. Um Just as there are different Siddhartha
0: stories. Right. Know, very uh, much uh, so. Whereas, like, Jesus is sort of, like, a
1: more clear... Yeah. figure in some of these ways yeah and then eventually there are you know these other sort of even more powerful characters maitreya she the kakavarti rajan you know who they all have like all of these characters there's this tendency to populate this book entirely with really really overloaded signifiers (laughs) (laughs) Like, like every character is highly overloaded like they refer yeah. to yeah very 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 important religious and mythological uh entities from right. lots of earth traditions and, and it's and a little bit unclear exactly why too i think i have a theory why and i, I also I'm think curious, it's like it's cl- yeah it's clearly intentional there's a clear intent to kind totally. of um to try to capture as many different earth traditions as possible with this methodology, this Mm -hmm. like writing methodology. Mm -hmm. So it's not like, Oh, we're only going to use characters from, uh, the Bible. No, we're going to use characters from like every major, uh, mythic, you know, genre that we can. Mm -hmm. And, um, the there's a kind of an attempt at least to sort of do do so in this like equal way or do so in like a way that at least it's not equal in every way but it's like we're going to give equal um, consideration in some sense to like each of these different traditions um, right. we're going to take something from all of them um, but we're then going to go wild with how we use the signifiers that we've taken mm-hmm. from these different traditions <laughs> very much so and obviously given Given the fact that the traditions are so different, they have. It it feels very different when you name a character Plato than when you make a character Jesus of Nazareth. Because, like Plato, even to the ancient Greek, like there's no group of people that ever thought of him as anything. To my knowledge, that ever thought of him as anything other than a mortal man who lived. Yeah. No, I think so. Whereas, of course, like huge numbers of people over over the course of history have thought of. Have thought of Jesus as something very different, and Siddhartha is something very
0: different. Right. Um and Siddhartha is maybe, you know, like more complicated because, like you said, there are different like Siddhartha stories. There are also different Buddha stories. Like the idea right. that Siddhartha is the first Buddha is like true in some traditions and is not true in other traditions. Right, right. And like and this, yeah. a Buddha versus the Buddha, and like what the does relationship that even between mean?
1: Yeah. The relationship between Siddhartha and Maitreya. You know, mm-hmm. it's different depending on the tradition. And Asura is the same way. Asura is um, the Asuras as a class of being um, in the in the a lot of post-Veda texts are contrasted with the divas. The Asuras right. are the villains and the right. divas are the heroes. The Asuras are the, the devils, so to speak. Exactly. Um, whereas, whereas, you know, in, in other this book, like
0: Jesus is the villain and Asura is like.
1: the The main character if there is one yeah kind (laughs) of not until the last third of the book does she become the main character (laughs) right and but like one of the interesting things also is that because they've really scrambled they've taken all of these signifiers in such a they've taken so many different signifiers from so many different places and they're all so incredibly weighted that it really scrambles our sense of like who's central and who isn't yeah that's a good point i like that in a really powerful way that i find really refreshing kind of it's like exactly because every single character is a major world figure it really scrambles your sense of like who's the most important or who's the most good or who's the most most um yeah and the fact that the actual kind of pov character that we get for the end of the book is ashura who is kind of in some ways the most complicated um signifier of all these or like the the, the sort of least easy to understand etymologically like how that name is is working here um you know it's it's a very interesting choice and it sort of gives it it makes a lot of the book honestly all of this stuff using all these different characters from these different religions makes the book um kind of have this like very powerful ambiguity that suffuses a lot of different parts of it because since there's so many different ways of interpreting all these names and all these people based on the different traditions, it just gives you so many options in all these different scenes. When we're, when we're seeing a battle between Jesus and uh, Siddhartha, it's like, well, we could layer, we could choose to layer so many different things on that, depending on what we want to, you know, think about. Yep. Um, it's such a palimpsest that it makes it ambiguous um in yep. this way that I think it has to be int- intentional. In particular um, there's this kind of interesting idea that comes up
0: in the book that you know I've also seen come up in like other literary works, um, where this idea of like Siddhartha was kind of like the first attempt at something. And then Jesus was the second one. Um, you often see this come up because there's a little bit just in terms of like their stories, as well as like the historical context of Christianity and Buddhism are like a little bit similar in this way of like both Buddhism and Christianity are this kind of like start as a bit of a like grassroots populist, like movement, both within and also against the, like, current very hierarchical power-driven religious structures. Um, and then they evolve in very different ways. And this idea that, like, oh, you know, like, Buddha came first. And, ha- and they also share certain similar ideas about, like, you know, salvation outside of the, like, typical religious structures. The idea that, like, actions are actually more important than than and like personal belief or personal action personal belief personal dharma is more important than like you know the larger structural dharma or you know like orthodoxy or whatever word you want to use for that stuff um it was interesting to me to see this in like you know in a you know tradition that's more steeped in, like because most of the time i see this kind of like from this western idea of like oh like buddha had these ideas and then like jesus came and he had the same ideas and like better and is more successfully when like the truth is that like buddhism is super successful as a religion you know it's like the idea that like it's not is just because there are so few buddhists in america i think in a lot of ways um But also, like, that was interesting to me, the way in which these, like, you know, it's like this idea pops up. And, and, you know, in this book, it's like, oh, well, the, you know the bad guys who are trying to like stamp humanity out through changing it slightly and tweaking it at different points. It's unclear exactly, but like they brought Siddhartha in, taught him some stuff, but also like gave him access to a on accident. And like, he learned kind of like actually what's going on. But then with Jesus, they did a better job of getting him to just like do the stuff they wanted him to do on earth um, was kind of this kind of, you know, interesting, like, Oh, historically they were doing this stuff for the like planetary development council. And Mm -hmm. both of them were working as like kind of human avatars of that council. Uh, And one did a better job for that council than the other. But then also they both later come back as
1: cyborgs to like fight each other and also fight the council and blah, blah, blah. (laughs) Yeah. I think one of the things that's going on here also is that, um, you know, in the philosophical traditions of these different religions, you know, they are all central to their own tradition. And Mm -hmm. the other traditions don't really have any weight within the christian tradition you know there's a lot of like non-christian religious people in the world but they all are equally like non-christian and don't really you know their particular beliefs are all just like different kinds of incorrect um and in of course in like other traditions like some similar thing is going on where you know in general people think you know if you're firmly within a certain tradition then you believe that tradition to be correct and you have to I would actually disagree well, with that. yeah, no, you I don't I don't I don't want to say yeah, yeah, I don't want to say that like all religions view non-members in the same way. That's not what I mean. I mean just that like um, every tradition is central to itself. Somehow somewhat by definition. Even like, even in the that same I way, feel like but, there's
0: there's a complication in the like eastern religions, particularly like Buddhism and Hinduism where Buddhism developed in northern India, um, left India as its own like separate religion in a bunch of different places, but in India was re-synthesized back into Hinduism, and like yes, be like, and so in that way, particularly when you're talking and and it, you know in a work where Buddhism and Hinduism are so important to the work, I think it is actually worth noting that. Hinduism reintegrated Buddhism, like, you know, post Vedic Hinduism in a lot of ways is a synthesis of like certain Buddhist ideas with Hinduism. Something like the Bhagavad Gita has like elements of Buddhism all over it, like fingerprints of Buddhism all over it. And like there are ways in which like, you know, in a lot of Hindu cultures or or not cultures, a lot of Hindu traditions, especially in northern India, like the Buddha is a deity in Hinduism. It's yeah, like I, a cult of I, Hinduism, that, not that's, a separate religion. And right, I think that's it's, definitely it's, true. It's, it's, also, it's different than the way that like the East maybe treats these religions. But even in the East, Christianity's relationship with Judaism is weird and varied, right? Like we would th- like a lot of Christians think of themselves as like the outcropping and just natural evolution of Judaism and like still as part of Judaism, even. Which is, you yeah. know, obviously has its own kind of weird anti-Semitic connotations yeah, yeah. and stuff going on, but also, like, I think it's complicated in the real world in a way that's useful to talk about for this book because it's complicated in a similar way in this book.
1: Yeah, no, I, that's all very true, and these are all good points, and and uh, I I I agree. Uh, it, it's also true that that um, you know, there's this very important distinction be- between uh. Intellectual traditions that that are kind of um, all or nothing, and traditions that aren't. Um, mm-hmm. There's there have been a lot of tra- like most of these traditions are like they don't they don't think like a lot of most adherents historically to one or the other of these traditions would not necessarily believe that like um, somebody else's tradition in the next valley over is wrong is like, but is like, doesn't have any, uh, doesn't have any influence on the world or doesn't have any power. Like right. a lot of people over the course of history have believed like, okay, yeah, like what I believe is true and like other people's beliefs may also have power, but they're just not mine. Right. So well, I think instance, in a lot of ways, like this idea
0: of like the truth of belief is a very distinctly Christian idea.
1: In yeah, a way a that a lot like... has been written about that. I don't I don't know if it's distinctly Christian. It certainly is Christian. Um Right. Right. But like, you know, there are a lot,
0: a lot, a lot of different traditions. It's less that like, Oh, my ideas are true and theirs are false or theirs don't have power or whatever. So much as like, my thing is what works for me. And maybe that's a little bit of like nicer way of putting it than it actually is. But there is really the sense of like, it's not that like my God exists and yours doesn't so much as like my God has power over whether it's me or my ethnicity or my geography Mm -hmm. or like whatever it is that ties that God to me and, ties me to that god. It's yeah. not necessarily truth and it's not necessarily existence in the same yeah. way that it yeah. is in the monotheistic religions particularly Christianity.
1: Yeah, and th- these are all very important points and definitely relevant relevant to the book, but the thing that I wanted to say originally is not is not that these are not the case. It's just that, you know, for a given tradition, if you're in that tradition, then that tradition then like almost by definition that tradition is central to you. It's not Sure, it's like, the most important it, to you, right? It's 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 in the middle. It's like the perspective from which you see everything else. Mm-hmm. Um, like that's just a definitional thing. I think it's not. It's not to say. It, that, like, that's fair. You, I agree with that. The thing that the thing that you're saying is an incredibly important, uh, like context piece of context for this. So I'm mm-hmm. glad that you brought it up. But um, but basically because a tradition is central to itself. Um, When you mix them all together and you kind of give them similar airtime, it creates this really interesting sense. Yeah, it creates this really interesting sense of like, it's like another way of showing the thing that I was talking about earlier, which is that um, each bubble of existence, like beyond the edge of our bubble of existence is another bubble of existence and Uh so on forever. Beyond the bubble of my perspective is another perspective and then another and then so on forever, you know? Mm -hmm. If we were able somehow to step outside the bounds of how we perceive everything and the entire limits of our our consciousness and our ability to perceive, Mm -hmm. we would see another similar bubble of perception. Um, Mm -hmm. And we would see things differently from there. And I think this is like what you are given as the book goes along. You're given the, the ability to jump from bubble to bubble. You know, first you start out, you start out like almost not having a complete perception of anything or you start out with like it's a complete perception of a very limited world it's not even a whole world it's just a little piece of one and you don't know what's going on but you you know you know stuff you you know how to live you know how to eat
0: you know some little fish creature eating around swimming exactly
1: yeah and then you jump up to somebody who's like the closest thing we have to a recognizable human i guess you know we got a, a, a regular guy who's really smart and important, but mm. he's still just a regular guy, Plato. Mm. Um, he goes he's around an academic. Ancient, yeah, he's an academic. He goes around ancient Greece doing research, and he leaves Greece, does more research, trying to find Atlantis. Cool. You mm. know, I can understand that. That's very comprehensible. It's a it's a perception bubble that's like small enough that I can, you know, I get it. It's right. similar to my own. Right. But then in that start to, bubble,
0: you get the Orion A bubble, which is itself, right. like, maybe pushing the limits of that a little bit.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's it's cool because it's not it's not just like a it's not really a question of like bigger or smaller. It's just a question of like right. from where are we looking? Yeah. You know, the difference of it <clears throat> from which traditional center are we are we directing right. our gaze outward? You know, mm hmm. Anyway, I think that's a really cool, like, effect of using these, like, super overloaded character names for these characters. Yeah. Um, I know you wanted to talk uh, in particular about Jesus. Do you want to talk about how Jesus was working in this book?
0: Oh, I, you know, I think I wanted to talk less about Jesus in particular beyond what I've already said. And more like that chapter of the book I found really interesting. Because, so, the Plato chapter is largely from Plato and Orion's. I have no idea if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Whatever. Uh, uh, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, perspectives. The Siddhartha chapter is very much from his perspective, and like Ashura is kind of in there as another main character. Then the Jesus chapter is told from the perspective of Pontius Pilate and Judas Iscariot. Mm which is one interesting that Judas is actually not one of the 12 disciples in this. He is simply like a, another prophet and another, you know, guy who, who, and he's essentially like an astronomer. Um, and Pilate is obviously like the, the Roman kind of like governor or whatever of Israel, um, of like the area that they're in Judea, Judea. Right. Thank you. Um, And I thought that was kind of interesting, given that, like, you know, up until now, you've been kind of like seeing stuff from the deity's point of view with the Jesus chapter. You very much don't. And he's like inscrutable Mm. in a way. Yeah. And I thought that was kind of cool, especially coming, you know, again, like like we taught we've talked before, like a number of times about like religion and science fiction. And uh, Lord of Light is a book that, you know, gets brought up a lot. Uh, I looked it up. Lord of Light published the same year as this actually, so they're they're like contemporary novels, both uh, both sixty seven um and you know, to get Jesus as this kind of like inscrutable figure as opposed to you know something like uh the Master and Margarita, I think is another like i kept I kept comparing that chapter to the Master and Margarita chapters, which are also told from the perspective of Pontius Pilate as he's going through the you know events that lead to Jesus's crucifixion Uh, and the way that those are like these stories are told differently the way Mm. that you know like in the master margarita Jesus is kind of like he's a sympathetic character in a lot of ways right he's this he's this character who is like really loving and you can understand like the the tension that Pilate has with like sort of like his structural position and then what he actually like feels towards this man as another man himself uh whereas in this novel the you know like Pilate is kind of like a disaffected like middle manager uh jesus is like kind of a weirdo, like not actually like that (laughs) interesting. He doesn't have like much of a philosophy. He's just sort of like the mouthpiece of these aliens, essentially, you know, his Mm -hmm. big thing is like, there will be judgment and you have to ready yourself for judgment as opposed to like, you know, the way that I think, the Jesus story and not just within Christianity, but within the West generally is like, you know, the direction we take of what Jesus said is like, you can find salvation, not there will be judgment. And the idea that the like thing that they found most frightening was like, Oh fuck all the salvation stuff. Like, what are you talking about? Final judgment? Like, what are you talking about? This stuff was kind of interesting to me.
1: Yeah. To me, that was a great example of getting a different perspective on stuff that we take for granted. Yeah, because I can see exactly how to somebody who is raised on a Buddhist conception of metaphysics, the idea of something final would be the most striking thing. Mm -hmm. Because like the world, if if you think time is infinite and like life is just this repeating process, Mm. the idea that it isn't is huge. The idea Mm -hmm. that like, oh, no, it's not infinite at all. There's an end. It's like, whoa, like, what even is that? Like, how do right. I even grasp that in the same right. way that like a lot of a lot of Westerners, when they learn about Eastern religion, they learn about the, all the whole panoply of different belief systems from east of like the Tigris and Euphrates. Like, you know, one of the things people latch on to a lot early on is this sense of like reincarnation and time right. proceeding without a definite end or beginning right because like, like that's cycles so reincarnation
0: karma and like a lot of this becomes very literal where it's like oh like you're just reincarnate you're you go into a different body and karma is just like the good or bad points that you get determines what body you go yeah. into wherein like the actuality of those religions is like way more complicated and yeah. like you know yeah. than the, like than that's not actually how reincarnation or kar- especially I mean I know about Buddhism a lot more uh, but like karma in most Buddhism is not like points that you get that mm determine where you go when you die it's not a (laughs) that's actually a very like christian determinate like idea of what karma is um another thing i liked through all of this like taking the like different perspective on christianity bit is like you kind of talking about this but like essentially like christianity is an apocalyptic religion Right. Like there's, there's the, there's the book of revelations. There's all this idea of final judgment, the idea of like, you know, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. where do you go when you die being this kind of like ultimate question of like why you should become a Christian. Um, especially in the evangelical churches where like, you know, I think even evangelical Christianity in particular is very like apocalyptic. Um, and the sense that I get from reading is that like that's actually like also the pre-Catholic Christian tradition when it was just like a bunch of like dudes meeting in basements in Judea was also this kind of like weird kind of like apocalyptic cult mm-hmm. thing going on. with Right. It. Because it comes out of the Messianic Jewish tradition. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And so there's like that's kind of an interesting piece of like, you know, like, oh, yeah, that's right. Like Christianity is like weird in this way. It's it's yeah. very focused on like in the end, you're all going to die. Yeah. Without while trying so hard not to like say it that way.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Which is funny because
0: like at the same time, like, you know, Buddhism, which can be very much about, you know, like, oh, well, life continues, you know, oh, life goes on even after (laughs) living. Uh, Sorry. (laughs) 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 Um, But like. You know, at the same time like a common this actually doesn't happen in American Buddhist traditions for reasons that make some amount of sense given the cultural differences but like I always find kind of like sad that it doesn't happen is um you know in a lot of Western Buddhism traditions like monastic traditions there are various forms of death meditation where you simply meditate on like what it means to die and this can take very different forms one of the most co- like not the most but like a very common form of it is like monks will go to burial grounds or to like any place where there are a bunch of like slaughtered humans or animals or whatever, where there's a lot of like death right there in front of you. And they'll sit there and they'll meditate within those grounds. Uh, this particularly happens in, um, like more mountainous regions where like you can't bury people. And so you just like leave them out um, mm-hmm. and they will like go to those areas and just like meditate on it. Um, and it's this really kind of interesting thing of getting so like close to death and like touching it and feeling it and really like being there with a the texture of death um, because it is part of life. Whereas Christianity is so like obsessed with death mm-hmm. and what happens after you die while also not really like being like scared of like actually touching it in the real world. Um, which I always kind of find this fun sort of like, yeah, you know, to and me, obviously of... like so many different Buddhist religions, like so many like different ways of hand. I don't want to like paint right, all of, of Christianity course, or of all of Buddhism in one way. And it's worth like it's worth the saying, stuff I have experience yeah. with in both religions.
1: It's worth saying that the, the author, you know, doesn't represent the author is not like necessarily giving a complete or fair depiction of any of these things. I mean, no. I think you're even trying to. Or yeah, or even trying to. I mean, you know, certainly like one question that I had after I read this book was, oh, "It's interesting that there's no Islam at all,
0: mm-hmm. and there's or also Judaism. no."
1: There's the other thing that there isn't any of is sort of Native less, American religious beliefs. Less, yeah, I don't know how to put it, but basically, like not, not, like something that isn't a big name. So mm-hmm. like a huge number of beliefs in the world don't have like a capital letter name associated with them or that they weren't given one by like 19th century, like German yep. anthropologists. And so they don't have one, but like they're <laughs> yeah. still just as important to the people who developed them. Right. Um, and this applies to also to Japan. I mean, Japan has indigenous religious beliefs that are very important even to this day oh, that absolutely. are not discussed in this book at all. Which So it's interesting right. that, that the author, who is surely aware of a lot of this stuff, chose to not make use of it. Um, mm-hmm. I don't see Shinto in this book. Um, no. That doesn't mean it's not there. But I, I you know, like, I, I would be curious if somebody has noticed it in a way that that, that I have not, I, I please let me know, because I, I would be really curious. And that would be interesting to me to see. Yeah, I thought the same
0: thing, actually, that like, there's a real big focus on, you know, particularly the Mediterranean and the Indian subcontinent. Mm -hmm. right like if i could if i could kind of point that because even though like you know in talking about siddhartha so much like japanese buddhism actually doesn't talk about siddhartha Mm -hmm. a lot i know this being like my lineage is like a japanese buddhist lineage like we very rarely talk about like the buddha as siddhartha like Mm -hmm. a lot more of it like and when we talk about kind of historical figures focuses on the historical zen figures or chan figures which are you know largely chinese and japanese you know like dogen is the main founder of our lineage and so we talk a lot about him and he's you know from the 16th century (laughs) you know he's like a poet from the 16th century japan essentially um and so you definitely get like you know like the buddhism the hinduism very much like kind of indus river valley you know indian subcontinent stuff going on and then uh judas jesus Pilate, plato all of this all like takes place in the kind of like you know Eastern Mediterranean basin. And so you really get these kind of two, you know, two different, essentially like cradles of civilization over the course of, of, of like earth's history. And that's also where the religions, you know, in so much as there's like maybe four different kind of like philosophical religious traditions represented, they all come from these two distinct places. That's right.
1: The book is clearly trying to be really small C Catholic, you know, in terms of how it's like taking in like, different information from different sources as inspiration but at the same time just as you just said like it's really only actually taking stuff from a couple of different key spots you know mm-hmm. and it's not taking stuff from a lot of other places so in terms of responding to to, to this point that that you've made and, and that i agree with i'm going to just quote really quickly from the authors um yeah please do something really interesting i thought when i read it so um this is say to Uh, And afterward to his own book uh, for the 1973 edition, which was which was the only like sort of revision that he made after the initial publishing. And he writes, quote, for me, the concept of the absolute was the key to the world of SF. I found it tremendously enjoyable to ponder what the absolute or an absolute being meant in the West, in the East, to the world and to the universe. End quote. So I think that might explain some of why he's mm-hmm. using the figures that he's using. Um why he's gone after Siddhartha even though it's not he, Siddhartha is not like a incredibly, you know, um central figure in Japanese uh religion or philosophy. I mm-hmm. mean, he's central in some sense, but like not in a day-to-day sense. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he's 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 not in certain ways. Yeah. He's, he's actually kind of peripheral in certain yeah. ways. But but uh, but of course, like Siddhartha and jesus and Maitreya, you know and in some sense plato in the sense that plato represents this sort of apotheosis of a certain kind of philosophy you know to Mm -hmm. people he's a representative Mm -hmm. of something right um you can see if if what he's going for is is um is the extreme or the absolute or the like ultimate version of different things right you know shinto isn't from what i know about shinto it's not interested in that um you know and from what i know about other now now obviously he could have He certainly could have chosen Islam. That would be that would have been an obvious choice, uh, in many ways. But well, and just that he
0: could have chosen like an Aztec religion, or he could have chosen you know like other like large central state absolutist religions. Um, But he didn't, and you know, and there's also there's an element of like okay, well that's also fine. Like you, he's he's slammed a lot in this book already. Right. I don't know how like (laughs) I
1: don't know know how you'd fit in more
0: right I don't know if you also need like Muhammad and like Quetzalcoatl
1: and like whatever right, else in Right, right. Too. <laughs> yeah it's interesting when we think about this book because it, it's clearly packed super full but it's also like it could have been packed a lot fuller and he clearly made a choice of where to cut things off mm-hmm. and the more that I think about it the more I like how he cut things off because it's not a long book it's actually pretty short yeah it would it have been it's easy nice for read. this yeah it would have been easy for this to stretch into like a 10 book cycle or some ridiculous thing. Yeah. And, and I, I really respect the decision to kind of keep it relatively short and manageable. I think it's probably the right move. I mean, I think like as it is, it's huge, but it doesn't feel impossible to grasp. Like it's mm-hmm. possible to just like read this as a novel right and even if it's dense in I parts think it's also it's like, okay. possible
0: to like reread it it's yeah, you know, totally. essentially 300 pages it's relatively yeah. short it's like a thing that you can like take and reread and study and work with much yeah. more easily than you could like you know a 10,000 or sorry a 1000 page novel
1: yeah <laughs> totally. much easier than a 10,000 page novel <laughs> yeah totally <laughs> i i definitely really respect that um and i also think it's interesting in what he said about east and west i think clearly he's he's in in some sense, he's working off of a two pole system of understanding Mm -hmm. the stuff Mm -hmm. that may be limited from our perspective, but like, you know, he's done a lot with it certainly. And, and, you know, it's, it's kind of, it's interesting if, if one of his limitations is that he's thinking of this in terms of East versus West and like not anything else, um, you know, that, that, that kind of might be an interesting frame to think about it also. Um, Mm -hmm you know, if West to him is like the Eastern Mediterranean and East to him is like the, you know, the, the Ganges basin or whatever, then it's like the right. Gangetic plane, you know, then it's like, okay, all right. I mean like that's, right. that makes an, int- that has a certain sense to it. It's obviously. Right. They're also like kind of these yeah. borders of this one particular continent. Yeah. Like
0: eh, eh, there's, there's definitely something yeah. to that. I,
1: I, I would say it's limited, but it's, But I understand, like, I I can see kind of the contours of this, at least. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think. (laughs) Oh, there's one other thing I wanted to say on the subject of characters. I just wanted to briefly say something about she. Yes. Um, S-H-I. In the English, it's written S-H-I. In Japanese, I don't know what she is supposed to refer to. Unlike any of these other characters, she is not the name of something that I'm aware of. It may be the name of something, but from everything that I've read about this book, it doesn't seem like it is. So what is she? Um, right. Well, she in the Japanese original is written in katakana, um, which means that, um, which which makes it further seem So yeah, maybe like, describe the different yeah. Japanese writing systems just a little bit because it's
0: complicated. Oh, man.
1: All right. Well, at a high level, Japan has a rather um, unique writing system in that it has more than one writing system that are sort of combined into one. Mm-hmm. Um, there are... Uh, most use cases there are like two syllabaries and one character set a syllabary is basically the same as an alphabet it's not quite the same but it's basically the same as an alphabet a character set are like if you've seen characters you know right. um, Chinese characters or Japanese characters um, where
0: each character refers to like a word right. as opposed to a syllable or a like uh,
1: well it's not just I mean I don't want to open a can of worms but it's well I, not I, a, I'm being very yeah. simplistic super yeah, yeah, yeah. super simplistic right. but that you know um so uh, characters are, are in Japanese. They're called kanji. Um, the mm-hmm. syllabaries and they're are... they're largely like old Chinese
0: characters. Like it's it's it yeah. was imported from China. That yeah, kanji system.
1: originally come from China. There are currently some kanji that are native Japanese kanji that don't exist mm-hmm. outside of Japan. Mm-hmm. Um, the same is true in uh, everywhere that kanji have ever been used. So they're... I don't. Okay. Well, I don't. I, I could go t- way too deep. Yeah. Into kanji, okay. Let's do the simplistic
0: version of it, but like yeah, yeah, to yeah, give the, some
1: context. The two syllabaries are uh, katakana and hiragana. Um, in at a high level, they are typically used to write different things. This is a generalization, but like in general, if you write something in katakana, it's probably a foreign word, a name, but only certain kinds of names, or a new word that you've made up. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so the fact that she is written in katakana, you know, is suggestive of one of those things, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, at a first approximation. At a second approximation, it's also a homonym for the kanji for death, (laughs) (laughs) which makes a lot of sense given what she is in the book. Right. Now, I think what we're meant to take from this is that she is this sort of like, like my, read on what she is um which i think you know first of all it's a reasonable question to ask because Ashra asks the question to the kakravarti rajan at mm-hmm. the end of the book like what is she and so of course like i don't think we're silly for having the same question the kakravarti rajan answers that question with this sort of like parable with this like by sending this like dream vision that it had to asura mm-hmm. in the <laughs> dream vision <laughs> and then disappearing forever, um, <laughs> <laughs> or at least for, you know, 10 billion days and a hundred billion right. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, In the dream vision, we're not given a direct answer to that question. We're just set, we're just sort of shown what seems to be a conversation between like two scientific researchers discussing this like thing that they're doing on uh, like some kind of experiment that they're conducting on like tiny particles. Mm-hmm. And the implication to me is that, Oh, that's this whole universe that we've been in this whole time, the tiny particles that these two guys are talking about. Mm-hmm. And, and so the idea that I get from this is that she is she is some combination of the intentional and the unintentional forces behind destruction in itself. Intentional in the sense that, you know, those two scientists like ended their own experiment they intended to do that and in so doing they may have caused the death of the universe as we know it unintentional in the sense that like could they have done otherwise you know i mean like if they hadn't then it would have ended perhaps their own world um you know so so she is this like is this like catch-all term for this like massive unstoppable endless you know kind of cycle of life and death force of death and, and right and and ending and and
0: loss and destruction And also some sort of element of, um, or I got this sense at least of some sort of element of uh, like accidental, like, like un, un, like she is not necessarily like a purposeful force. And I got this sense, particularly in that second to last chapter when they, you know, build the coils and like do the thing and like, you know, finally like teleport, um, And in doing so and without even realizing it, like destroy this city, this moving city that they've, you know, sort of like, Mm. like been inside of. And, you know, it's like they don't even you know, it's like the heroes of the novel up until this point, like destroying the final remnants of this, like entire civilization just because they want to get from one place to another. That's right. You know, like, so what is she
1: like in that moment? They are. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. That's exactly how I interpreted it, too. It's basically the name given to entropy itself to the force of destruction the mm-hmm. thing that they are opposed to but that they also are and right. cannot help but be right yeah,
0: and you, so, you know you can't yeah.
1: oppose entropy like uh, and any like you know local opposition to entropy will create even more entropy that's right elsewhere. that's right that's right and so i think in a way it's like it's really cool how the book portrays that despite W- uh, seeming to feature a lot of conversations where characters are like telling you exactly what's going on in so many words. It mm-hmm. doesn't actually tell you exactly what's going on. It forces you to kind of pick up on it. Mm-hmm. Um, I really I really like how that theme is dealt with throughout. Mm-hmm. And that kind of brings us to talking so about... So I have a question yeah? for you, mm-hmm. Matt. Um, sure.
0: and, and maybe this is where you're going, maybe not. But uh, is this book fatalistic?
1: Yeah, I think that's one of the big questions that i came away from this book with i think at the end that the the author so i think it's all about attitude so i think basically the author believes that the world is doomed like clearly doom is not something you can stop Mm -hmm. and so the question becomes like what is the proper attitude to take towards entropy and destruction Mm -hmm. and i think that we're left with something that's a little bit ambiguous. Um, I don't think we're given a very firm set of instructions as far as how to behave in the face of this. Right. Um, one thing that we get is that the author feels, oh, or the the character of Ashura feels despair and sadness um, in the face of the loss right. that she ponders, you know? Right, and that's but kind I, of the end of the novel is her, like, right. sadness. But, but, I, but I don't think it's only sadness. I think there's something else there, and I think there's something else there is basically a gesture towards what you were bringing up when you mentioned um, death meditation. Um, I think basically that the author, on some level, kind of wants to suggest that there might be a more enlightened way of perceiving this, the way of the mm-hmm. Kakravati Rajan, not of ashra mm-hmm. And Ashra is not the Kakravati Rajan. For all that she's very powerful and perhaps the last thing left alive in the universe. So So one thing that happens in their
0: conversation is the uh, Kartavachi Rajan, I'm not going to say that correctly, um, has this quote that I really liked, which is, Mm -hmm. it is in mankind's nature not to believe that misfortune and tragedy are approaching and to forget calamity after it has happened. Um, Mm -hmm. or after it has occurred. Uh, And that was something that I, you know, thinking about in the context of our pre-read discussion where we talked about, like, how sometimes, like, natural disasters can actually have this weird element of, like, being fun and building community and, like, this sort Mm -hmm. of, like, thing we don't talk about with them. Um, Yeah, that for someone who hasn't listened to that episode, that sentence sounds really weird. Go listen. I promise it makes sense in context. Um, But, like, I felt like that was actually kind of, like, pointing to that directly this idea that like you know or i think of it in terms of you know climate change right now um where like shit is getting worse really quickly and it's just going to keep speeding up and like so it's so much easier to be like no it's not right it's so much easier to just no nah, it's fine right You know, move from the coast. Like, why are you building on the coast anyway? That's dumb of you. You Mm. know, (laughs) it's like... You're dumb. Stop being dumb. Right. And it's so much easier to, you know, be to, you know, assume that calamity is not happening instead of that it's coming. It's so much easier to, like, look away from it than to, like, you know, and again, the Christianity versus, like, death meditation, at least, like, you know, evangelical Christianity versus, like, Tibetan death meditation, to be more specific about it, is, you know, like... It's so much easier to be like, oh will die, but heaven than it is to like sit with a bunch of dead bodies and mm-hmm. like smell them and look at them. Yeah. And know and that that will be you one day. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And find a way of living with that. Right. And, and, and then know, hopefully find better and better ways of living with that.
0: Right, right, and you know, I don't. I, I'm not going to say that like death meditation on its own is always a really good thing and will, you know, lead to better whatever. It just like there is a bit of this sense of, um, you know, in this fatalism, which is you know, I mean, and there's also this way like okay, there's this fatalism, but they all he also talks about it a little bit in terms of like well, you know, okay, everything's going to die in like tens of millions of years in billions. Right right in trillions of years like what does that even mean um but yeah. one of the things he points out and i think this is interesting i don't know if you reread this chat the chapter before the final chapter um they go to this city where there are like robots and humans oh yeah i love i actually love but, that part <laughs> yeah but the humans have all been like downloaded onto like metal disks so there are mm-hmm. not actually like humans anymore they're just the like memories of humans like encoded in digital format that can be like re-uploaded into bodies right. like as necessary and like the point he makes is like you know how is that any different from death or sleep how is it how is it actually like, there's nothing alive there when you're not in motion when you're not moving but yeah. to move
1: means to get to closer to death Right. Um, you know, there's and, this tension. And anyway, your entire metal disc city is going to be destroyed also eventually. Right, right. And also to
0: create the disc city, you had to destroy the lives of everyone else outside. You had to make yeah. their lives worse in order to like make yours That's right. stagnant. That's right. Uh, which is this kind of like really cool, like that thematically like really worked for me. This feeling yeah. of like, you know, Like, what does it mean to, you know, I mean, like in in a more modern book, it would be like, oh, upload into VR, blah, 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 whatever. It's the same kind of ideas of like, you know, what does it mean to take what you are and try to, like, take a snapshot of it and save that snapshot? And does that really life? And obviously he comes down on the side of like, no, it's not,
1: Um, you know, but but even even for the way entropy, Yeah. Even, you know, even at a, a, you know, in the cases. So this book portrays a large number of different civilizations trying to save themselves from calamity in a large number of different mm-hmm. ways mm-hmm. and they all fail. But mm-hmm. they also like, they also like in most cases like succeed at like the initial thing that they're trying to do. Like they all sort of like oh, are successful. That's a good point. They also, they are all successful at like staving off death. Like they, they all launch these like, whether it's a giant war or like a, um, A terraforming project or like a planetary defense council or like a some kind of attack on somebody else they all launch these massive projects and like many of their projects succeed they they just even the biggest and most crazy of their projects fundamentally doesn't can't end entropy itself and (laughs) so at the very end the last thing that we're left with after all these tries and some successes and then eventual failures like cuz they do succeed for like mi- millions of years at a time they just eventually lose mm-hmm. what we're left with at the end is the kakravarti rajan leaving ashura and like ashura you you almost get the sense that ashura has like become the new kakravarti rajan for the new iteration right. of the universe and it's like okay well, we're going to do that whole thing all over again the kakravarti rajan failed the kakravarti rajan tried to like seed the world with something that could like be enough to like stop she but it couldn't and it wasn't and it didn't. Mm-hmm. But now it's Ashura. And now Ashura lives and will live another, you know, massive length of time. And maybe ashera will succeed or maybe not. And Ashra certainly feels despair and loss when she ponders this. But it's also like it's not going to end. In some sense, right. it all ends. And in another sense, nothing ends because right. the whole thing is going to start and happen again.
0: Yet there was no way back to what had been. And in front of her stretched only another 10 billion days and 100 billion nights. I oh, mean, yeah, that, that, that's the last line of the novel and exactly yep. what you're saying, which is yep. like, you know, it's all ended, but it's there's stuff. But nothing's still ended because we're right? doing it's it all, all again. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And so that's why I think it's ambiguous. It's sort of like, well, it's clear that there's this it's clear, we you know, the author's almost saying, like, I clearly feel something and what I feel is a sort of loss or despair or some kind of negative thing. But at the same time, like, you know, it's not over. You know, mm-hmm. and like, I don't know if I'm right. I, that's the sense that I get from it. You know, yeah. Ashura is, is not a super being. She is a super being in some sense, but like, she's not like God, literally. She's not actually, you know. Right. There are things bigger than her and things she doesn't understand, you mm-hmm. know, and she's just doing her best. Mm-hmm. <sighs> cool. Well, I think
0: that's like, that's a good summation of all the questions and thoughts that I had with the novel at this point, is there anything more that you wanted to kind of, you know, like I was saying before, with just, you, I feel like this in some ways might be a slightly shorter, like it, there's so much to talk about, but it's also just in terms of like, like, some of it is, like, feelings and harder to, like, analytically talk about necessarily. Um, I do at the end want to plug, like, a, a few articles, and I think we should link to a bunch of other mm-hmm. analyses for people who want to go deeper. Like I said, I, I didn't read any of these partially because I didn't want to, like because i had so few thoughts of my own so far i wanted to not like read a bunch of other people's thoughts and then just regurgitate them as my own i'd rather just like link to the stuff that i thought was good um totally but but yeah are there any other kind of like main themes or questions or ideas that we wanted to like hit on
1: before sort of like doing that wrap up i think there's definitely more i could talk about but i I like the idea of leaving it here actually because i think it's it makes it more manageable yeah.
0: Yeah. It's a big book. And it's, you know, I mean, in terms of like ideas and in terms of like density of stuff going on, um, I feel like it's the kind of book where I'll probably like revisit it in a couple of years and have yeah. like completely different thoughts on it at that point. Um, so that'll, totally. that'll be fun when that happens. Um, so, you know, that was the post read for 10 billion days and 100 billion nights by Ryu Mitsusei. Uh, fun novel. I think, I think you know, like I said, I had, I had some troubles with it. I had some hesitations about it. But ultimately, like, I'm very glad I read it. And I, I would, like, highly recommend it to our readers, especially as a sense of, like, you know, getting to read something that is foundational to a lot of the stuff that you know and love that you might not know exists. Like, you might not know where the foundation actually exists for some of this stuff. And it's, you know... A lot of it is in here, uh, which yeah, is cool. Totally. I love that aspect of, like, as a, yeah. you know, like as a
1: sci-fi anthropologist, I fucking loved it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh my, oh my God. Yes, absolutely. And I think if people are interested, one thing I'll add is, you know, I'll, we'll put the links for this, like, like Adrian said, but one thing I'll add is if you're interested in Japanese science fiction, one place to start would oh, be yeah. Haikasoru, which is the name of the publisher that did the English translation mm. that we used. Mm-hmm. Um, They also do English translations of a lot of Japanese science fiction books. So if you're interested, for example, in The Legend of the Galactic Empire, which is this uh, series of light novels. Light novels is a a genre in Japanese um, literature. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, if you're interested in, uh, you know, that's another thing that you might check out. It's like this, you know, many, many, many book long epic space opera that has become two animes. Um, mm-hmm. since the books came out in the 80s right um,
0: and actually that's another thing I wanted to plug just generally is there's a lot of good anime science fiction both in terms of like movies as well as tv shows uh, and the tv oh, shows yeah. tend to be like like one complete thing instead of these really long on, on running things at least at least some of them and uh, I would say that you know it similarly kind of like foundational to a lot of the stuff that you know and love would be akira um i mean i feel mm-hmm. like if you haven't seen akira definitely watch akira um it is a really good kind of disturbing movie at points um i will say that like that you know oh yeah that one that that movie well i watched it when i was a teenager and like whoa it it was like more than an Almost any other movie at that point really threw me for a loop. I think partially because I don't think I'd ever seen something that was both animated and so adult. Like there's nothing like Mm -hmm. kids movie about that movie. It's a very dark, depressing, like sad and like tragic
1: movie. Um, The manga, it's based on a manga originally. And the manga is, if you're interested, if you watch the movie and you like it, definitely check out the manga. Right. It's I think partially manga,
0: based on the manga. It's
1: based on like the first like third of the that's manga. That's right. The, not even. The first volume of the six-volume right. manga. Right. And the manga d- goes to all kinds of places that the, the movie does not end up going. Right. It's very interesting. Um, um
0: and then also there's a there's a TV show uh Matt that you recommended to me that I really love called Planetes that's something oh, you yeah. you showed me in college Huge that fan. I love um which is you know very different and is you know instead of like this big space opera big ideas type stuff it's just like the lives of some janitors on a space station essentially I mean, yeah, it's a clean up space trash Yeah there's a lot of orbital mechanics in it it's great it's beautiful it's like this really quiet calm like character studies of a bunch of different people living in the future that i i love um i'm a huge fan then, of that ghost in yeah, the shell i think ghost we mentioned ghost in the shell ghost in the shell, right, in the did, the shell and akita
1: are like the two ghost in, i would say ghost in the shell akita and um nausicaa valley of the Winds right. are the three sort of most famous in america japanese sci-fi things from the last 30 years there are I would others say
0: that Like Nausicaa is probably less famous than the other Studio Ghibli films, but particularly Princess Mononoke because of the like dub that happened in the like early 2000s. The
1: the thing about Nausicaa is that it's it's like, uh, like, um, I think we mentioned this in the pre-read, like um, 10 Billion Days, it's a really foundational text. It, It was like Mononoke is in a lot of ways like highly derivative of Nausicaa. Um, Right.
0: Well, I mean, it's the same. It's a great movie.
1: (laughs) Yeah. It's the same people making both of them. Uh, The uh, one thing I will say is
0: Nausicaa is really hard to find. Like I tried to find it after we had our like uh, our episode where we talked about it and i was unable to find it oh, really in oh, any that's weird it, there's not digitally available in any way in america um so at least i have been unable to find uh. a way to stream and watch it even well, paying for it yeah i i, have I found DVD, a dvd so I and worked. i don't have a dvd player but even the dvd apparently like the one released in america is a like recut of the film it's not just a dub it's actually yeah. they re-edited the it's film true. i know it's uh it's a little unfortunate but um right Um, And that was released by Disney, and so like
1: you can sometimes find the DVD when it's like out of the Disney vault. If you get a chance, though, it's it's really huge, and I think it's like amazing so another one that that is whereas um, princess
0: mononoke is like easier to find that's part of why yeah. i recommend it for folks okay, it's like fair enough it's a lot easier to find and the dub is like really good it's actually a really good dub um unlike a lot of
1: anime where the you
0: know the dubbing is maybe not it's so not, great, not and great. The like original voice acting is yeah. better.
1: another one that people should check out is there's uh this was made into an anime movie but it was originally a novel the girl who leapt through time um oh, cool by yatsutaka Tsuitsui. um Uh, This is a novel that in Japan is like really, really popular Um, when it came out. I think it came out in um, a long time ago. I guess it came out in the 60s. I actually know it says here 1967. The original publication date was the same year as um, 10 Billion Days, and 100 Billion Nights. Um, This is a um, it was translated into English relatively recently like that book. And the anime movie that people might be familiar with came out relatively recently. Also, the anime movie is very good.
0: Cool. The I book haven't, I, haven't I have not that. read,
1: but um, it's a great. It's another very different kind of story. It's like a. Mm-hmm. It starts out as like a slice of life, you know, high school girl story, right? And then, of course, as you might expect, time travel comes into comes into play. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Spoiler alert. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, it's a very popular Japanese sci fi novel that like kind of crossed right. over into the mainstream of Japanese literature, right? So that's yep. another big one. Yeah. So I just wanted to end with a couple of like
0: recommendations of Japanese science fiction, movies, TV shows, books, manga, etc. Like there's a lot of cool stuff out there. And there's like so much that I think it can be hard to know where to start this novel is a good place to start. Yeah. You've already done that. Like a few of these others, like I would recommend it, you know, especially the stuff like Akira, which is like easy to find. There's like Ghost digital the shell, versions I of it. You Ghost Michelle, easy to find. Um, there are a couple of different versions of that. There's like both TV shows and movies and like none of them yeah. is particularly definitive. So right. like any one of those that you find will be good. Um, you know, Princess Mononoke, just because that's really easy to to find yeah. um,
1: in America. And we are obviously leaving out a lot of stuff that we So much. Mention. Right. So, um, I guess the you know. final
0: one, which probably is it's kind of hard to recommend as a first one because it is so much of the genre. I'm going to say, yeah, Neon Genesis Evangelion, which we talked about before. It's very much a response to a lot of other anime, but it also, like, particularly deals with a lot of the same <laughs> themes that this novel does, um, in, in with true. a similar, like, religious iconography as well. Um, so, that's that's potentially an interesting one um and it's great it's so good um there's a couple of like yeah yeah it's it's very great um yeah so that's it from me at this point do you have anything more i'm good cool good well, well thank you everyone for listening um this has been spectology uh next month we will have a guest on we're still working out the exact details of recording but we will be reading um the Brown Girl in the Ring by Nalo Hell Hopkinson. Yeah. Uh, really looking forward to this. This is a book that we've like talked about a couple of different times in different contexts. And we're going to have um, a friend of Matt's on, um, Mendes Hodis, who uh, actually studied like Uh, Afro-Caribbean religion and stuff, so he's going to have a lot of or African religions, maybe. Uh, I'll edit in whichever one it actually is. (laughs) Um, He is going to have a lot of cool stuff to say about the book. Um, We're really looking forward to reading it. Um, There's also a movie based on the book coming out soon, so we'll see. Maybe we can throw a bonus episode in here at some point. Um, When's
1: that coming out? I don't know.
0: I don't know exactly. Sometime later this year, so we'll have a bonus episode like later on in the year, kind of dealing with that. Um, ho- hopefully, we'll, we'll see. Um, Matt's unfortunately going to be gone in real life for a while, so he might miss a couple of episodes, but I'll be recording with Mendez as well sad. as a few other guests, uh, and Matt sad. will hopefully at least be on for like one episode of every book that we do, um, even if we can't make it to both, that we're trying yes. to work that out. So yeah, we have a couple of cool episodes, a couple of cool guests coming up that we've already, episodes and guests that we've already recorded, some more that I'm working on, and the summer i'm not going to say who it is or what it is but like i've been talking to one really cool guest So would make it eh, that's exciting i'm really excited for like making that happen so adrian's some, very some excited. cool I'm stuff very excited happening too. later in this year for the three people still listening you're getting the first sneak peek <laughs> um anyway uh thank you to wj for our music thank you to noah bradley at noah for our cover artwork um Thank you, Matt, for being here. Thank you to everyone listening. Thank you. A good time. Yeah, no. Thank you for this book too. I'm glad I finally sat down and read it. I went and looked, and I bought it in like like months after it was released in English, and I've had yeah. it on my Kindle since then and never actually read so it. That so that would have been really, like
1: seven years. Really ago. glad
0: it was. It was like it was like January 2012.
1: Not even kidding. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so you know, I'm like stoked I finally did it. So anyway, have a good
1: one, Matt. Have a good one, everyone. You too. Bye. It's been real. See you later. Peace.